Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as a principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Michael Holliday, a family physician and site principal investigator for cardio at the University of Cincinnati. Today's podcast will offer key insights about the diagnosis, self-management, and pharmacologic treatment of type 2 diabetes for primary care clinicians from a leading endocrinologist. With me today is Dr. Kathleen Dungan. Dr. Dungan is professor of medicine at The Ohio State University in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. She serves as the Division Associate Director of Clinical Services and the Director of Endocrine Clinical Trials and oversees the inpatient diabetes program. Her research focuses on diabetes clinical trials and ranges from quality improvement, pharmaceutical, and device interventions in the inpatient and outpatient settings. Dr. Dungan is also the Psycho Principal Investigator for Cardio at The Ohio State University. Dr. Dungan is also the Psycho Principal Investigator for Cardio at The Ohio University. As a primary care physician who takes care of patients with diabetes, I'm excited to pick Dr. Dungan's brain. I was inspired to have this conversation after reading a review article by two nephrologists, Neil Page and Glenn Nagami, entitled The Top 10 Things Nephrologists Wish Every Primary Care Physician Knew. In that article, the authors shared what they thought would help primary care providers take better care of their patients with kidney disease. Primary care physicians now treat the majority of patients with type 2 diabetes and often run into some barriers when doing so. Dr. Duncan is dedicated to helping this population and the healthcare professionals who are working hard to care for them. With that in mind, she's going to share some insights that have helped her care for these patients and that she also wished every primary care provider knew. Dr. Duncan, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's start at the beginning. What do you wish primary care providers knew about diagnosing diabetes? Well, it's important to get the diagnosis right because everything flows from the correct diagnosis, right? Not everyone has type 2 diabetes who's diagnosed as an adult. So the first thing I look for is, could this person possibly have type 1 diabetes? I have diagnosed type 1 diabetes in people as old as 80. So it doesn't mean that just because you're not a kid or you don't have DKA that you you couldn't possibly have type 1. So look for things like lean body habitus, autoimmune disorders. Look for an absence of family history. It's not always the case, but oftentimes type 1 has no family history, whereas type 2 has a lot. When I'm in doubt, I'm going to go ahead and order the C-peptide and glucose and fasting situation. I'm going to order autoantibodies. Sometimes you find yourself in a situation where someone doesn't quite meet either one. And in that case, you can actually go by the American Diabetes Association, European Association for Study of Diabetes kind of consensus guidelines, which were published recently. And if the C-peptide is less than 0.3, they're recommending, you know, just treat them like type 1 diabetes, which makes a lot of sense. If their C-peptide is above 0.7, then you can treat them as though they're type 2, but just check their C-peptide and glucose periodically. And if they're in that gray zone, then they probably need a basal insulin plus maybe something else like a like metformin, GLP-1, um, you know, whatever else kind of works for them. And keeping in mind also that sulfonylureas might kind of burn out pretty quickly in these patients. 
And then the second diagnosis that I don't want to miss is someone who has monogenic diabetes. So again, there's another consensus guideline from the ADA and EASD, the European Association, that sort of goes over what kind of criteria you could use. There is an online risk calculator available, but I don't usually go to that Typically, if someone's under the age of 25 when they were diagnosed and they have a strong family history or relatively lean, I'm going to strongly consider it if they have a normal C-peptide and autoantibodies. And so in that case, if you suspect it, you could send them to an endocrinologist and then we can take it from there. Typically, I might go ahead and just order the genetic testing. Otherwise, I'll send them to a geneticist or there are some clinical trials available to get free testing. And then the third one is pancreatogenic diabetes, which is uh, generally treated in the same way, I think, kind of based on their C-peptide levels. Oftentimes they need basal bolus insulin and they can be quite um, labile in terms of glucose control. So when, so it sounds like when you have a patient who's an adult with diabetes, if they have the typical phenotype, they're, they're overweight, maybe they're able to respond to the traditional therapies that we think of fairly well, it's probably type 2, but we should be thinking about other cases such as the um, latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood or LADA, sometimes called diabetes 1.5. Is that, is that correct? Yes, but, but technically, you know, Medicare and CMS only recognize type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes. Um, there is a diagnosis code for it, but you do have to kind of clarify whether you're treating it as type 1 or type 2. So you probably want to use both diagnosis codes in that case. So you don't have to take a stand with just one. You can put both codes in there. Absolutely. Okay, great. And then in the patient that could have the monogenic diabetes, it sounds like in those patients, there's quite a family history. These are younger patients, like you said, less than 25. And I know the diagnosis can be a little bit complicated. And so in those cases, genetic testing can be helpful. Yeah, because in those cases, sometimes they're exquisitely sensitive to sulfonylureas, and they can be sensitive for many, many years and respond quite well to them. There might be some other, you know, diagnostic tests because they can be associated with other kinds of syndromes um, like urogenital disorders or neurocognitive defects where it's important to kind of flush that out. And I think this is a great thing to be thinking about because we don't just refer patients to an endocrinologist when we're not able to manage the patient after a long try of doing it. Sometimes if we're not sure about the diagnosis, that, that, that could be a good time to refer as well. Yep, absolutely. Now that we've diagnosed our patient with diabetes, what do you wish every primary care provider knew about assessing glycemic control? Well, first of all, I have to state that the A1C is still by far and away our go-to measure of overall glucose control, and it's by far the most predictive of, of complications. With that being said, A1C doesn't help us in a lot of cases in actually making day-to-day management decisions, particularly if a person's on insulin. It misses low sugars. It misses high sugars. It just tells us what their average is. And it's also a lagging indicator. If you've got a recent change in glucose control, it's not going to be affected by the A1C, even though the A1C reflects mostly about 50% of it reflects the last 30 days. You could still have an impact from more prolonged uh, glucose trends. And then finally, the A1C may not always reflect average glucose, particularly if someone has abnormalities in red blood cell turnover for a whole host of reasons. 
And so we really do, especially if someone's insulin requiring, want to think about using A1C in combination with self-monitored glucose or in some patients, continuous glucose monitoring. When we're making those day-to-day decisions, like how do we make sure there's not hypoglycemia? How do we manage particular types of uh, glucose control, whether it be basal or postprandial? The A1C by itself can be kind of too little, too late, uh, but still quite helpful if we look at it along with the self-monitoring blood glucose. Yeah, I can tell you if you're in the ballpark, um, but then where to go from there, you you need the, the actual glucose monitoring data. And I think it's also helpful to not wait until that three months of getting the next A1C. It sounds like it's good to not wait until you judge how the therapy's going. You want to get some more data before then. Yep, absolutely. And when it comes to self-monitoring blood glucose, what would you want us to know about that in terms of how to best use that data? Sometimes it could be challenging for patients to check their glucose. How can we be using it to the best of our ability and the best of their benefit? Yeah, so that's always a challenge. And for me, it's more often than not the rate-limiting step to getting somebody under control because if you can't assess their control, then how can you make adjustments to their therapy? I would say the first thing is that we all have a rosy recall or tendency to have a, a rosy picture of how things are. And when you actually look at the data objectively, it may differ. On the bottom of my list would be relying upon self-recall. Having patients keep a log or better yet, the ability to download their data so that they can review it and so that you can review it is a better way to go about doing things. And uh, that can be challenging. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. But with connected meters now, um, they don't have to be on CGM to be on a, on a connected meter. And, and many of the health plans will cover these connected meters so that patients can share their data. We also want to tailor the monitoring so that it matches what kind of regimen they're on. So for example, if starting basal insulin, we want a fasting glucose. We probably also want a post-supper or bedtime glucose so that we can understand what's going on overnight more clearly. If they're on multiple injections of insulin per day or you're just starting an injection at, at one meal, you probably want some glucose monitoring around that meal. If they're not on insulin, you could do something other than just check a fasting glucose every day, which I think many of my patients tend to just do as part of their routine. I would encourage them to maybe take a week out of the month and test before two hours after breakfast one day and two hours after lunch the next day. Just get some values at different times of the day so they can see what their daily pattern looks like and how that affects them. Otherwise, it's really not that helpful at all. And some could argue if you're not going to use the data, um, it doesn't really provide any benefit if you're not on insulin. Yeah. So if you, if you had a patient who is checking it maybe once a day or a few times a week, you'd want to get a variety of sugars so that you could look at different goals and how you're doing, not only the A1C, but the fasting and also the postprandial. And you could have the patient be thinking about those goals as they go along. How about For those patients who need a little bit more in-depth measurement of their glucose, could you talk about the continuous glucose monitoring, also known as CGM, a little bit? Yeah, so CGM can be eye-opening for patients and myself. Um, You know, you may be just at a loss for really trying to figure out what to do. You know the A1C is not a goal, but you can't figure out, you can't see any patterns on the finger sticks. 
And so my mantra is when you don't see a pattern, get more data. And what better way to get data than CGM? So you, you have the choice between professional CGM, which is clinic-owned devices, and uh, that's generally pretty well covered universally, or um, personal CGM, which is a patient-owned device. Generally, most insurance plans will cover it in some form or another if you're on multiple injections of insulin per day, but they won't necessarily cover it if you're just on one injection of insulin per day or no insulin. Uh, Just because there's less evidence to support that, um, I do think that many patients probably would still benefit if cost were not an issue. And then those patients who have difficulty with hypoglycemia or hypoglycemia unawareness, uh, those would be good patients, but typically they're, most of them are on insulin anyway. The biggest barrier, I would say, for Medicare beneficiaries, it is the requirement that they're checking their blood sugars four times a day already. So you want to you know, discuss that with their patient, and if they're, they're willing to do that, then you can document that in your note, time your follow-up so that you can document that in the note, and then going forward, and they also have to use a durable medical equipment company, which involves faxing forms and can be really tedious for the patients and I think for the offices alike. So you might think about, you know, if there's one or two companies that you can get a good relationship with and and get an established workflow, that might be the best way to get started on something like that. Maybe involve a pharmacist or a nurse uh, to help navigate that process. For patients who are on Medicaid, Medicaid managed care plans, The criteria are evolving currently, so I hesitate to say a whole lot currently. We did have in the beginning of 2021 the added requirement that they had to have diabetes education at the beginning and annually when prescribing CGM, and I think that's going to change, but that is definitely valuable to have CGM, but it has created some barriers in terms of continuity and and the availability of education coordinating, and most importantly, making sure the patient is aware that this can be a tedious process and uh, that they should be patient and communicate with your clinic throughout this process. If uh, a primary care physician is not well-versed yet on getting a patient started with this, can diabetes uh, educators help patients get started with it in terms of just the mechanics of doing it and collecting the data? Yes, definitely. I think if you have access to diabetes education, that is one of the the roles that they can play is help the patient decide what kind of device, help them get go through that process, and then actually start the device. There are um, some situations where patients will self-train, and many of them do quite well with self-training, but many of them just have trouble understanding even how to use the device, how to interpret the data, and how to problem shoot it when they have issues like, you know, adhesive issues or, you know, irritation, allergies, things like that. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. Now that we've gotten some more data, we're discussing how to um, prevent the progression of diabetes, control it better. And a popular topic recently has been this idea of clinical inertia or the idea that uh, we sometimes fail to initiate or intensify appropriate therapy based upon current guidelines. In diabetes, we often see patients drift over time to worsening control. What advice would you have for us as primary care physicians to try to address this problem? 
Well, Dr. Holliday, I think I've even heard you say this when we had our initial discussions on this podcast, and I couldn't agree more. The optimal time to address a patient's diabetes uh, can never be easier than now. Diabetes is a progressive disease, so I think the expectations should be said early on that um, a patient should understand that it's a chronic disease. It will tend to progress no matter what you do. So we want to try to avoid, you know, any kind of blame calling or threats with insulin or threats with if you don't do this or do that, this will happen. So that way we don't kind of add to that sense of despair or sense of of guilt. But then also recognizing that early on we should be aggressive with treatment because we know that uh, the, the beta cell does tend to to continue to fail, and it becomes more and more challenging to address that as it does continue to fail. This also really kind of provides some motivation to not promise the patient that, oh, if you get your weight under control, that we can take you off of all of your medicine. So the expectation should be that we always want to try to stay ahead of the game. And also, in the very beginning, not just belittle the gravity of the condition without being, you know, too overwhelmingly scary. We want to, you know, use the proper terms like this is type 2 diabetes, not just a little sugar or, oh, it's early, you know, just trying not to minimize it. There is good data now that shows that the earlier and more aggressive that we are with new onset of diabetes, the less likely they are to fail therapy. So for example, if you have someone with newly diagnosed diabetes and you start them on two-drug therapy, um, there's a recent study, the VERIFY trial, that demonstrates that they are less likely to progress to needing a third agent, even if you sequentially add the drugs one after another when they've failed the first drug. So there's something about that early control that helps kind of protect the beta cell. That's a great perspective. It sounds like you're approaching the patient with just the idea of being an advocate for them, and you're wanting to advocate for their best interest, which is to be on the least complicated therapy possible in the future, and and that does mean sometimes being a little bit more aggressive now. In addition to some of the things that we prescribe, obviously, patients have a lot of work to do themselves. We call this globally self-management. What pointers would you give primary care physicians when it comes to this? There's so many things that patients could be working on. Uh, where, Where do you think they should start? Well, I think it's important to know where they are right now. And you won't know unless you ask the questions. Um, there are many things that uh, patients do know, and um, there are also many things that they don't know that they don't know. Things like people will believe that fruit juice is, is healthy for you because it's coming from a fruit, um, when in fact it's probably one of the worst um, sources of nutrition uh, for a patient with diabetes. So I asked them first off, Do you have any kind of sugar-sweetened beverages or juice? And knowing that these are sometimes easiest to kind of peel off from their diet because it doesn't make them feel full. And in some cases where it's excessive, you absolutely cannot get blood sugars under control, nor do you want to be titrating insulin in the setting of a lot of sugar-sweetened beverages. So I look for that kind of low-hanging fruit low-hanging fruit juice. That is that is a clever approach. And uh, I, I, I can imagine a lot of people are in that situation. I, I often find patients have been drinking a lot of soda as well. 
And that's that's a habit they're having a hard time getting rid of. What are some other issues when it comes to self-management that you would want us to think about? Well, exercise, of course, is important. It's not it's it's not only heart healthy, it's helpful with weight loss, although by itself doesn't result in a lot of extra weight loss. But a lot of things that patients don't always recognize is that it's a really effective tool for managing hyperglycemia. So let's say you eat something you shouldn't at dinner. What do I do about it? Well, yeah, you could take extra medicine, but you can also just go take a walk. Even if it's a 10 or 15 walk, often that's enough just to get the glucose under control. Another one is snacking. So there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions. I'm not sure entirely where patients uh, get this, but they feel like or they're told that they need to have snacks in between meals and at bedtime. That may have been true with old therapies, some of those types of insulins that we had that really weren't as physiologic. But in today's day and age, they just add calories. And so just to have a snack for the sake of having a snack really um, shouldn't be necessary with the the kinds of therapies that we have today. And so I would encourage patients, particularly that bedtime snack, to be very careful that we're not titrating the basal insulin in the setting of of eating, you know, snacks. Um, And then the last uh, item I'll throw out there is, is sleep. So patients with type 2 diabetes have a lot of comorbidities. They might not sleep well for a variety of reasons, but sleep apnea is one of the most common underdiagnosed conditions. We know that patients who have um, sleep apnea and other sleep uh, disorders, they're, they're commonly occurring together, and they can lead to reduced quality of life. They're associated with higher glucose levels. But we don't really know if you fix the sleep apnea, whether that really impacts glucose control. So there's still more to learn about this, but important nonetheless. That's excellent. Thank you. And could you mention what would happen if uh, you were taking a bedtime snack and you were titrating the uh, basal insulin based upon that? What might you run into? Well, I worry that the the instant that a patient does not have a snack or even during the daytime, let's say they're more active or they, you know, have one of their meals later than they should, their basal dose is going to be higher than their true basal needs and their risk for hypoglycemia. Which is definitely something we want to avoid. I want to move on now to other members of the care team. I know diabetes seems like a pretty pretty complicated condition to treat. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Recently, it's been shown that team-based care that's interprofessional seems to help with control of diabetes, particularly those with A1C greater than 9. What would you want primary care physicians to know about your perspective on team-based care? Well, I don't think this should be too much of a surprise to you, Dr. Holliday, um, but just the same as as um, we couldn't just throw you in the middle of a, a field somewhere and expect that you can provide the best medicine that you can, um, you can't just throw an endocrinologist um, at a patient and expect them to get the absolute best care that is possible. So a team is so critical, I couldn't do it by myself. 
And when I say team, I mean every single person on the team. So from the the person who's scheduling the patient to the advanced practice providers and nurses and medical assistants, at least in, in my clinic, they are all sort of mini specialists in their own right um, because they know the, the needs of the individual patients that we're working with. And I think that's, you know, maybe a challenge um, for some, you know, patients to really thinking of, you know, their physician as sort of the, the sole source of care, but I definitely couldn't do it without the team. And, and I, I think it's really impossible, you know, in, in any sphere to be able to do that because uh, there just aren't enough diabetes specialists out there. And all the same, um, there aren't enough uh, diabetes specialists, obviously, to take care of all patients with diabetes. So I would even broaden that team out to the primary care provider um, as well. And really, that team centers around the primary care provider. So we're just kind of one maybe planetary orbit around uh, the, the primary care team. Recently, you mentioned to me that diabetes care and education specialists we're a group of team players that we sometimes underutilize. Could you touch on that a little bit? Oh, yes. So from the most recent Ohio Diabetes Action Plan, a little over 50% of Ohioans with diabetes had ever had diabetes self-management education and support. So we are definitely underutilizing certified diabetes educators. And it's important to recognize that, you know, patients often default to, well, I already know what I'm supposed to do, so why do I need to see an educator? Or I read a book or did this or that. Um, But the educators not only provide education, but they provide support and they help facilitate the use of that knowledge and, and the mastery of that knowledge. And I find that to be helpful so that patients can understand that the whole point is for them to have control over their diabetes. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know until we get in the uh, company of an expert who's really trying to help us out. So it sounds like that's, that's something that we should be referring uh, to a lot, a lot more frequently. I'm going to mention insulin again, uh, only because it makes me nervous sometimes, uh, and um because if we overdo it, we can cause hypoglycemia. It can also be challenging to patients to start insulin. What advice would you give when it comes to using insulin in type 2 diabetics? Well, there are some similarities with, with type 1 diabetes in that I try to mimic what the pancreas would do if it were working. And that's how I try to explain it to the patient. You know, here's what the pancreas would do if it were working. So we're going to try to imitate that. The first piece of advice is not overdoing the basal insulin. I think 20 years ago, when basal insulin was really uh, just starting, you know, to be used widely, that was the major hurdle. And now, the major hurdle is knowing when to stop and um, when to when to go to something else. So you can think about maybe using something else like prandial insulin or adding that in if a patient is needing more than 0.5 units per kilo. If they have a large decrease in their bedtime to AM glucose, that might be a clue or if they're having hypoglycemia during the day, or just a lot of variability during the day, that you might be reaching their limit in terms of basal insulin. And so then you might want to go to the next step, which is a basal plus. 
What about in the patient that you're titrating up the insulin and it just doesn't seem to be working and, and you're wondering about insulin resistance in a patient? What would you advise us to do in those cases? Yeah, so that really can be quite a challenge. Once you've got the basal insulin where you, you're really thinking you're, you're reaching some of those limits, you'll start prandial insulin. Instead of sliding scale, which we, we tend to kind of default or are thinking on, it's best to really start thinking about prandial insulin. So sliding scale is reactive rather than proactive, and uh, it's it's actually complicated. So, you know, a patient has to actually look on a chart and be able to have some level of numeracy and health literacy to be able to do that. Uh, whereas if you just start with a fixed dose, so the American Diabetes Association recommends four units, or you can take 10% of their basal dose, and then adjust it according to their post-meal glucose. And if you start with just the largest meal of the day and just focus on titrating that one dose, you can get an additional 50% of patients to goal. And of course, the other half will need further dose intensification. And so that's the first thing that you can address is once they're really kind of getting up to big doses of basal insulin. And from there, I start thinking about using non-insulin therapies or optimizing those non-insulin therapies. Did they somehow come off of metformin because, well, it stopped working and we're starting insulin? Let's revisit that because that can help patients become more sensitive. GLP-1 receptor agonists should have been started before basal insulin in most cases, but if not, you can uh, definitely add that on and get um, better results. Other therapies like SGLT2 inhibitors and DPP4 inhibitors can help insulin work a little bit better as well, and so you could consider those. Um, at the large dose, at the large doses, say like 60 units of basal insulin a day, I will switch patients over to a more concentrated basal like Glargine U300, which is otherwise known as a brand name Tegeo, or Degladec U200, which is otherwise known as Traceba. These allow you to give basal insulin once a day instead of twice a day. It's just that opportunity to not miss an injection by limiting the number of injections that they have to take. And it's better absorbed. Lysepro, same thing, is available in a U200 formulation. So it has the same exact pharmacodynamic properties as U100. And so it's just better absorbed. And so it makes sense to switch patients over. And then I don't really think about U500 until patients are needing 250 or 300 units per day. But U500 needs to be dosed about 30 minutes before meals. So patients have to be aware of that and have to be kind of willing to um, adjust their lifestyle and their schedules to accommodate that. And oftentimes we have to use bigger doses in the mornings and, and at, at lunch than we do at supper, depending on their meal sizes and glucose levels, because it has a really long tail. So it can last, you know, easily six to 10 hours, which is longer than your, your analogs like Lysepro, Aspart, Glulysine. Well, this has been an incredible discussion. I really appreciate your help. I, I know I feel a little bit more comfortable taking care of uh, patients with diabetes now. I'll think twice uh, before calling everyone a, a patient with type 2 diabetes because there could be something else going on. And I'm thinking a lot differently about how to utilize medications that could be more effective and also not doing this alone. And I, I know I'd certainly be referring uh, to someone like you if my patient needed U500. It's absolutely my pleasure. Well, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank our featured guest, Dr. Kathleen Dungan, 
endocrinologist from Ohio State University, for joining us today. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.